This will be week number 70 and we have accumulated so far around 40 hours of material and the plan is quite simply to read through the entire book of Exodus every Sunday live from the King James Bible and I think we are maybe the only ministry in the UK that does this. Exodus chapter 22, look at verse 1 if you will. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So this chapter continues from chapter 21, dealing with the protection of a nation, the organization of a nation, the focus of a nation's attention towards God. In other words, this is the initiation of a constitution. If a man, this is conditional, going back to chapter 21, if you do this or if you do that, such and such will occur. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Compensation, but on a large, uh, large scale. So nobody would uh, think they could get away with this. Again, theft will be a problem. And theft is a problem. Going back to you will not steal, because if you start to steal, society starts to fall away. And of course, during the Great Tribulation, the mark of the beast will be mandatory. But it's my belief that during the Tribulation, many people, like nonconformists, will avoid the mark of the beast. They won't take it. They will steal to survive. Not all people will take the mark of the beast, and those that take it suffer ever damned. But those that don't take it are going to be able to survive by stealing. And here, if a man steals an ox, sheep, or if he kills it, or goes on to sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox. You steal one ox, you've got to replace the stolen one with five, and four sheep for a sheep. You would think twice before doing this, because again, if you start to steal, society starts to break down, and when society starts to break down, you've got chaos. And if I wasn't a Christian, I would be calling for a revolution, but I look at revolutions over the last two or three hundred years. It could be France, it could be Russia, it could be elsewhere. And when a revolution begins, Cuba, another good example, there's anarchy. Christians are rounded up and of course they are punished and even put to death. Look at verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. And we spoke about Farmer Martin some weeks ago. A man who found a burglar, two burglars, breaking into his house maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Got his shotgun and shot one of the criminals in the back. He got eight years in prison for that. About 18 months ago, there was an incident of a family, elderly family, elderly couple in North London that woke to an intruder in their home. This intruder was a career criminal, came from a career family of criminals, and the homeowner, went for his, I think from memory it was a knife of some kind, a kitchen knife, stabbed the intruder to death. The police were called, obviously. They arrived on the scene within moments, but remarkably didn't arrest the house owner. And last week, the coroner reported that the death was lawful. You break into somebody's house, you pay the consequences. Mm -hmm. A man's home is his castle in States of America. If you break into such a property, you are entitled to open fire. And in some states, you are entitled to use fatal damage, or you are entitled to take a life. You are entitled to kill an intruder. If a thief, again, this is conditional. If a thief be found breaking up, we would say today, breaking in, and be smitten, assaulted, struck, that he die, 
There shall no blood, no blood be shed for him, because he had no right to go into the house to begin with. Your home is your castle. In the UK, we don't have access to weapons per se. Criminals do, of course, but civilians do not. It's different in other parts of the world, but going back to the incident that took place in North London 18 months ago, no charges brought. The elderly house owner had Alzheimer's as well, was looking after his ailing wife. And like I say, the coroner ruled it was a lawful death, a lawful killing. And here, if a thief is found breaking into one's property and he is struck, then he dies. There shall no blood, no blood be shed for him. Of course, for today, criminals have rights. For today, criminals can sue homeowners. Criminals can sue the police for using tactics, shall we say, which they don't particularly care for. And you find many of these courses, many of these cases, many of these trials, civil cases, taking sometimes years to be resolved. But Moses is very careful. He will add conditions to this to avoid unlawful death and also to protect the, on the one hand, rights of the intruder, interestingly, but also the rights of the house owner. Look at verse 3. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So in other words, if the sun has already risen, so he can be seen like it's daylight, blood must be shed for slaying him. Because there's no reason to kill somebody if it's in broad daylight. And of course, uh, if a thief goes on to survive, if he goes on to live, he, the thief, must make full restitution. And of course, if he has nothing, he'll have to be sold to cover his costs. Look at it again. If the sun be risen upon him, it's daylight. Unlike night time, if the sun be risen upon him, broad daylight, and the homeowner and the house intruder are meeting face to face, there shall be blood shed for him. He has a right to attack the break-in or the uh, burglar, as we would say. But of course, if the burglar survives, he should make full restitution. The Anaseed is on a thief making full restitution. If he have nothing, if he's a poor man, he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, he will become a slave, a servant. Could you imagine that taking place today? That criminal that broke into that house from a long line of criminals. And could you imagine had he survived and being forced to pay restitution? And had he been unable to do so, being sold as a slave? Of course you can't. Of course, we're back in the Old Testament. This is Old Testament material. But it's interesting when you try and compare it to today. Look at verse 4. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Going back to verse 1. If he steals, for example, an ox or an ass or a sheep, and it's still alive, he has to restore it double. Double. Going back to verse 1. If you steal an ox, you have to replace it with five, or a sheep, you have to replace it with four. The whole purpose of this was to, like I say, protect the nation, first of all, organize the nation, number two, and three, focus on the nation's attention to God, building on the initiation of a constitution, like making a wrong right. This is basic Bible. This is basically common sense. And some countries, like I say, allow their people to open fire. And if somebody is killed in the line of fire, as they say, it's no big deal. Look at verse 2 again. If a thief be found breaking up, if a thief be found breaking in, if a thief be found intruding into one's home, and be smitten that he die, like manslaughter, there shall no blood be shed for him. Completely exonerate the house 
owner. But, verse 3, if the sun be risen upon him, so this is daytime, not nighttime. Had this taken place at nighttime, like in London, year before last or early last year, or concerning farmer Martin some years ago in the dead of night, then of course the homeowner was entitled to open fire. But if the sun be risen upon him, it's daylight, like I say, there shall be blood shed for him. So the homeowner is entitled to use some kind of uh, defense, if you will, for he should make full restitution. So of course if the thief survives, let's say the house owner gets him into a headlock, puts him on the ground, breaks his arm, breaks his leg, or maybe he has a flesh wound of some kind, but he survives, the thief has to make full restitution, like compensation. If he have nothing poor, then he should be sold for his theft. Keep your hand there and go to uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. Back in the 1980s, the UK was experiencing civil disobedience. There were strikes all over the place. And for a period of time, the British miners were striking around the uh, Sheffield area, the uh, back end of the Midlands. And it went on for maybe 15, 16 months. A lot of people were struggling during those uh, times. And basically what took place, the Church of England and the Catholic Church took the sides of the miners. And one Catholic cardinal, a guy called uh, Tom Winning, gave an interview back in the 1980s. And he said basically this, that it's okay to steal. It's okay to steal if you are hungry. And here it says the same sort of a thing. Men do not despise a thief. Of course, if he's stealing from you, they will do. But if he's stealing from somebody else, they won't. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. An old cardinal winning, and we met him years ago before we were saved. A very charismatic cardinal said it was okay to steal. People have to survive to feed your family. And I remember watching a movie a few days ago based on a true story of a miners' strike in Wales, turn of the last century, and they were struggling to survive. And in their local town was a butcher shop, and they'd been striking for a period of time. And the owner of the butcher shop refused to sell them food or give them food on credit, to be more precise. And they decided to smash up the shop, ransack it, and steal all of its goods. And of course, verse 31 goes on to tell you what would happen if a thief is found. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. So theft is out. In the ancient world, if you stole a pig, a sheep, or an ox, and you were caught, you would lose your hand. If you did it the second time, you would lose your other hand. And if you were caught the third time, you'd lose your head. Go back to the book of Exodus. So winning was wrong. But of course, the Catholic Church is political. They play both sides. And of course, they many times play both sides off each other. But here, 21, 1, 2, and 3 deals with a thief breaking in. And Moses has legislation in place to cover... For example, if the house owner overreacts, like it's a grudge perhaps, or he uses too much force, there are checks and balances built in, but ultimately the thief who broke in had no business breaking in. And yet most countries around the world, like I say, including the UK, excluding what took place last week 
from the coroner's standpoint, most countries around the world don't take the side of the victim, but of the perpetrator. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, he's caught and he's got an animal in his care, but it has survived, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double and a seed concerning the thief, of course. This goes back to thou shalt not steal. You can steal someone's property. You can steal someone. You can steal something. And if you are caught, like verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, there are consequences, of course. Look at verse 5. If a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten, and shall put it in his beast, of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard, should he make restitution. Common sense. A Jew was to love his fellow Jew. A Christian is to love his or her fellow Christian. You were told over in 1 John chapter 3, that if you don't love your brother or sister, by default you are guilty of hating your brother or sister, because the opposite to love is hate. And if you really continue down that path, 1 John chapter 3, John says you are a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If a fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn, or the standing corn, or the field, be consumed therewith, he that kindleth the fire shall surely make restitution. You caused a fire, make it good. You caused your animal, verse 5, to wander into somebody else's field, eat the goods. It takes time to plough the ground, not that I would know, but it takes time to plant seeds. It takes time to till the ground and you want to take a shortcut you want to take the fruit off the tree you want to take the fruit or the vegetables you want to dig up carrots or potatoes what have you you make restitution put it right basically look at verse 7 if a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep and it be stolen out of the man's house if the thief be found let him pay double you steal from someone and you are caught for stealing from someone, again, you have to pay back what you have stolen. If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, we use that term every day, sort your stuff out, get your stuff sorted out. And here, lending money, giving money or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house. If the thief be found, let him pay double. Going back to verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and beyond. Look at verse 8. If the thief be not found... Then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he have put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. Was it planned? Was there a conspiracy of some kind? Did these two come together and say this? I've got money being delivered at such and such a time. You break into the house, steal the money, and I will pretend I had no idea what was going on. Collusion. Conspiracy. If you think of white-collar crime, most of white-collar crime is very carefully planned and plotted. Some of the banks, some of the uh, lending houses, some of the building societies, some of the top bankers around the world do what's called inside trading. Insider trading. And they make a lot of money based on what they know. And sometimes they will turn a blind eye. And you've got money being, uh, money being moved from one country into another. And the banker closes his eyes, figuratively speaking, of course. And his colleague next to him simply does a quick transfer. Same sort of a thing. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges. They're going to hold him accountable to see whether he hath put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. Judges back in the Old Testament were like, I guess, elders for today. Judges back in the Old Testament had a lot of authority, like the high priest back in the Old Testament for today. We have no high priest per se. Jesus Christ is our high priest. But we have elders 
we have brothers. Some are pastors, some are overseers, some are evangelists. And if you want Israel is a type of the old church back in the, uh, the excuse me, Israel is a type of the church back in the Old Testament. If you will, Israel would be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The church are called out people. The word church in Greek is ecclesia. Ecclesia means a called out people. Moses back in the Old Testament is a type of, of Jesus for the New Testament. The children of Israel back in the Old Testament in the wilderness are a type of the church today in the wilderness. John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness for many years. A lot of Christians feel they are in the wilderness, trying to preach the gospel, trying to get people saved. And therefore, verse 8, it would be down to the judges, brothers, men, of course, to decide whether or not something had been planned, something nefarious, or whether or not this was something which just took place, couldn't be avoided. It could be quite innocent. Like I say, I could give you X amount of money, or you could give me money, and I, and I say to you, I will look after your money. And I lock it away, and then one night somebody comes into my property and steals it. It's not my fault. And therefore, it'd be down to the judges to determine whether or not it was my fault. And if a conspiracy had taken place, the consequences would follow, of course. Look at verse 9. For manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiments, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbour. Daniel speaks about the great white throne judgment. And he says he saw the ancient of days. Pitching the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And the books were opened. Which is also picked up over in the book of Revelation. And it says thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Um, thousands ministered unto the ancient of days. There's a picture of the church at the great white throne judgment. Acting as judges. Perhaps adjudicators. To assist the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the lost. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Paul told you from 1 Corinthians 6 how the church will judge angels during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the great white throne judgments will see the church presence with the Lamb of God, at least in the office or station, or at least concerning their uh, choice of being spectators, if you will, at least from the standpoint of being spectators, and at best, adjudicators same sort of a thing back in exodus chapter uh, exodus chapter 22 for all manner of trespass that's the word we want trespass keep out private property enter at your own risk a lot of people have dogs and they say keep out beware of the dog and i've seen those uh notices in my neighborhood and it's a good thing to say keep out beware of the dog i've seen footage online over the years of people breaking into homes and the dogs attacking the perpetrators biting the perpetrators doing damage to the perpetrators and you know what they say serves him right serves him right for all manner of trespass whether it be for ox for sheep for ass for raiments or for any manner of lost thing like lost property which another challengeth to be his the cause of both parties shall come before the judges and whom the judges shall condemn he shall pay double unto his neighbour. Again, compensation. But if you think of the great white throne judgment, there will be people that got saved in the tribulation. And also, during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to be judged for their works. A lot of Christians think they'll be at the great white throne judgment. No. You get judged at the judgment seat of Christ. You get judged at the judgment seat of Christ concerning your works, of course. But those that get saved after the church has been raptured are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment concerning their works. They get crowns 
to some extent, rewards to some extent, but not in the same sense as the church does. Found over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep, and it die, or be hurt or driven away, no man seeing it, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both, that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept thereof, and he shall not make it good. An oath of some kind, an oath of innocence of some kind, like I pray, I pray, or I swear, or I promise to the Lord that I wasn't party to something nefarious again what has taken place or what has happened was out of my control again verse 10 if a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep for the day we might say a car a motorbike or if you're very wealthy a boat and it die or for the day it gets broken or be hurt damaged or driven away but in the context physical livestock no man seeing it, no witness to see what had caused in here, in, in the context here of a beast, uh, sheep, ox to die or be stolen. Nobody witnessed it. Then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. He wasn't responsible for what took place. And the owner of it shall accept thereof, has to abide by the oath of innocence, and he shall not make it good. In other words, the owner will have to just accept what has taken place. What do they call this? Murphy's Law? Mm. Today they call it an act of God. If your roof falls in, or you have a flooding, or something serious happens, and you find up the insurers and say, the roof collapsed overnight, or there's a blackout, or the windows have cracked, or something serious has happened, there's a crack in the wall, or the floor has opened up overnight, uh, a mudslide or something serious has taken place, like a sinkhole, for example, they say, we can't help you with that. It's an act of God. Your insurance doesn't cover you for that. But here, the whole point was to be sure that nobody was guilty. And if there was guilt, that the guilty party would pay for what he or she had done. And if there wasn't any guilt responsible, then unfortunately, it would fall to the owner to write it off. Accept it, basically. But it would be written off via an oath of innocence. Twelve... And if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. Again, you steal something back in the ancient world. First of all, you'd lose one hand. Then you would lose another hand. And if you continue to steal, you'd lose your head. This is basic Bible. Basic civilization still upholds such to this day. A lot of problems in London at the moment. A lot of stealing going on. A lot of bikes being stolen. I saw a report on the news three nights ago of bikes in Manchester being targeted people are getting fed up with their motorbikes being stolen the police don't seem to have a solution for this don't seem to really care you've got vigilantes going around now trying to stop their bikes or bikes belonging to their friends from being stolen it's a breakdown of society you see but what do you expect you teach the kids you teach the kids in school that there's no god you tell the kids in school they can do what they want you tell the kids they have rights you tell kids that there's no god that we all got here thanks to evolution you tell kids there's no such thing as right or wrong, good or evil, that it's all subjective. What do you expect? A breakdown of society, and when people try and stand up for their rights, nine times out of ten, they are just knocked to the ground. But that homeowner in North London, he got a standing ovation. I'll tell you something else. When that thing took place a year or so ago, and I'm not condoning of the death of that criminal, 
But when that thing took place, the relatives of that family, the relatives of the criminal, came to that man's house and left flowers, ribbons, outside of the property where their son was killed, went on for days. Intimidation. And the police were called to that house in North London. People were getting very upset that this criminal family, I think they were gypsies, yeah. or travellers, as they are called today, yeah. were able to intimidate an entire neighbourhood. And that elderly house owner, about 70-something, suffering with Alzheimer's, was forced to move with his ailing wife, but the community got sick of it. Went into hiding, and the press got involved, and to cut a long story short, he was almost treated like a hero for standing up for his family, standing up for his home, and for the first time in a long time, the law ruled in his favour. But basically, these 12 verses are the continuation of the initiation of a constitution, do's and don'ts, if you will, checks and balances put in place, Moses knew that some people can overreact, have a temper problem, like the sons of Zebedee. On one occasion, they would want to call fire down from heaven and consume those that would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would say to them how the Son of Man hadn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. So therefore, checks and balances were put in place. Going back to if the intruder broke in at night time, what can you do? It's three o'clock in the morning. You can hear a sound downstairs. You've just woken up from a, from a deep sleep. You don't know what's going on. You take action and ask questions later. Or you deal with the intruder first and deal with the consequences later. But if it's daytime, and that's the whole point, if it's daytime, if it's light, you can call for help. You can use reasonable force. That's the term I'm looking for, reasonable force. You can detain the criminal if he's similar size and statute to you. Hold him down or hold her down until the police arrive. Of course, for the Old Testament, there was no police force. There weren't even any jails back in the Old Testament. The children of Israel are called the armies of the Lord. This is fascinating. This is so advanced, so advanced when it comes to other civilizations, whether it be the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. I mean, the Jews have always been in the driving seat. What they were told from Exodus 21 and 22 was light years ahead of other civilizations. Fascinating. And we will continue next week looking at this in more detail. Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23 deals specifically with slavery, which could be as a result of personal debt or personal theft. And also Exodus 21, 22 and 23 deals with homicide, which could either be premeditated or involuntary. And yes, there's a difference between killing and murdering, murdering and killing. Exodus 22, Exodus 22, look at verse 3 again please. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So one more time, if the house intruder was caught, challenged and killed during daylight hours, the homeowner would have to be killed because the death of the intruder was considered to be unlawful checks and balances and this piece of scripture is revolutionary if you think of any other religion on the face of the earth there aren't many checks and balances when it comes to the rights first and foremost of the house owner contrast that to the rights of the home intruder and yes there is a delineation one more time and i move on if the sun be risen upon him daylight there shall be blood shed for him no reason to kill him, restrain him, hold him, semicolon, 
for he should make full restitution if he survives, of course. If he have nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. So basically, there are two ways to deal with this. First of all, if it takes place during daytime, like I say, the house owner has lost his right to live because he's taken the life of the intruder during daylight hours. But if it took place at night time, then of course, this would be considered justified homicide. But last week, we finished in verse 11. And I read it again to set the context. In fact, look at verse 10 to get verse 11 clear. If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep and it die or be hurt or driven away, no man seeing it, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both, that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept thereof, and he shall not make it good. And if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. So an animal is involved, livestock is involved, and should the animal be stolen, verse 12, and the person who had the livestock was unable to resist the theft, then he, and here in the context, the person who is in charge of the livestock has to make full restitution unto the owner thereof. Again, this goes back to what I said last week. Protect the nation, organize the nation, focus the nation's attention to God. This is basic civilization back in the ancient world. Livestock would be very important because back in the day, livestock was the sole means to make a living. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were shepherds. The Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. The apostle Paul was a tent maker. The apostles are fishermen. They work with their hands. Manual workers. Blue collar workers. The apostles were lower middle class. And I guess it would be probably true to say the same would be true of those back in the Old Testament. Low middle class. Look at verse 13. If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for witness, and he shall not make good that which was torn. Ripped to pieces, accidental death, Murphy's Law, or as they call it, an act of God. There was no way to avoid such a thing taking place, and therefore why would you penalise the person in question? You've lost an animal, it's torn in pieces. That's bad enough. Then let him bring it for witness. Get a third party to check it out. Today, if you want to sue someone, you go to the courts and they make a decision as to which is the guilty party. And he shall not make good that which was torn. Just write it off. Just write it off. Paul told you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that if you are wronged, take the wrong. He would condemn Christians over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for suing one another. And he would say, just take the wrong. Turn the other cheek. And also from the book of James, confess your faults, not sins. Confess your faults one to another. If it be stolen from him, verse 12, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. Compensation, of course, if it be torn in pieces. If it be torn in pieces, verse 13, then let him bring it for witness. Third party, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Let the facts be confirmed to be so. And he shall not make good that which was torn. Out of his control, out of his hands. Pure and simple. And if a man borrow aught of his neighbour, and it be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner thereof be with it, he shall not make it good. If it be an hired thing, it came for his hire. It was parts of the cost, part of the hire. If you hire a car in the UK, you are forced to take out insurance. And if the car is involved in a crash, the insurance covers it. It's built in to the cost of the hire. 
Same sort of a thing. Verse 14 again, if a man, if a man, this is conditional, if a man borrows aught anything of his neighbour, and it be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner thereof be with it, present, he shall not make it good. So now the emphasis is on the owner to take better care of his property. If it be an higher thing, it came for his higher. Again, I love the checks and balances built in to Israel's constitution. If this happens, that will happen. Or if that happens, this will happen. But basically, the overall theme of chapters 21, 22 and 23 would be to deal faithfully, justfully, be transparent, don't try and cut corners, don't try and get one over on your fellow man. And again, this is the Jew under the law. This is Israel's covenant. And it's so important that we get this clear. Look at verse 16. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. A man. If a man entices a maid, and yet today many women will entice men, but here the emphasis is on the man, the blame is put on the man. If a man, free will, should a man entice, seduce a maid, a young woman that is not betrothed, not engaged, and lie with her, like have sex with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. An endowment. So if you think of old Jacob, he had no dowry to offer Rachel's father. So what would he do? He would work for his dowry. First of all, he was told to be seven years, then it was doubled to 14 years. He worked to show Rachel's father that he loved her. And the whole point of this verse is basically that if a couple come together, they stay together. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. If a man entice a maid, seduce a woman that is not betrothed, isn't engaged, and lie with her, he shall surely, he shall surely, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. When flesh meets flesh, you have a marriage. There's no ceremony involved. There's no marriage certificate involved. There's no best man, no bridesmaids, no page boys. There's no people present. When Adam was married to Eve, nobody was present. Of course, God put them together, but you see my point. There was no third party present. So when flesh meets flesh, you've got a marriage, whether you like it or not. But here you're looking at fornication, basically. Way back in the Old Testament. And verse 17 builds on this. If her father utterly refuse to give it unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. So the father doesn't like what has taken place, doesn't like the idea of his daughter being seduced, doesn't like the idea of some third party sweet talking his beautiful innocent daughter, and she's fallen for his flattery, she's fallen for his charms, she has succumbed to his seduction, and the father doesn't like the idea of having this guy as a future son-in-law, but by this stage, they've got to get married. They've got to come together via a feast. If they don't, elsewhere, it speaks about killing the man and the woman. This shows what it was like back in the day. And I'll discuss that more in a few moments. Look at verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. This is one of the most controversial passages in the scripture. And if you do any kind of street work, as we do, you've had people come up to you on the streets asking you to explain this piece of scripture. And it's always interesting if not somewhat amusing when you've got unsaved people becoming bible experts mm -hmm. wanting to put us on the spot like we have to give an answer an answer to those that confront us if the intention isn't good now you were told or you were told over in first uh, peter to always be ready to give an answer of the faith that is in you 
so on and so forth. But if the intention is good, if the intention is good, you're also told over in the book of Psalms, uh, made that Proverbs, excuse me, that you aren't to answer a fool according to his folly. But let's say somebody comes up to you in the streets and asks you about this passage, and they've asked me over the years about this passage. I always enjoy saying this. Well, first of all, this is aimed at a Jew that was found practicing sorcery under the law, like King Saul. And King Saul, a Jew under the law, was found consulting a witch, like the witch at Endor. Bring me up Samuel, so on and so forth. He could have been put to death for that. Later on, he would die. Indirectly, of course, as a result of that, he was killed in battle. In fact, strictly speaking, he killed himself and his uh, armor bearer finished him off. But basically, this piece of scripture, 22:18, is concerning a Jew catching a Jew under the law practicing sorcery. This is named at the Gentiles per se. Paul told you that his remit was to deal with the church, but God's remit is to deal with the world. So therefore, don't get upset or worried about this if you are challenged. In the context, this is aimed at the Jews under the law. Jews weren't allowed to practice sorcery. Jews weren't allowed to practice bestiality. Jews weren't allowed to practice fornication. I mean, need I go on? Exodus chapter 19. Jehovah speaks to the Jews, and we looked at this some weeks ago, and he told them about the covenants, and they signed up for this covenant. Now let me say this. It is true that when the Pilgrim Fathers went to America... 17th century with their Geneva Bibles. It is true that when they arrived on the east coast of America, like Boston, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and other parts of uh, the east coast of America, known as the New World, at that time, they took Calvinism with them. They were Calvinists, five-point Calvinists. And it is true that there were witches that fell foul of these Puritans, and it's true that some of those witches were put to death. That is very true. But we don't know if they were all witches. Sometimes a person would be accused of being a witch, and they weren't a witch. I think Joan of Arc was accused of being a witch. As far as I know, she wasn't a witch, but she was very superstitious. So Calvinists, yes, did kill witches on the east coast of America, that is true. But the Catholics killed far more Christians, far more Christians, going right back to the second century. And I was left a comment this week in my King James documentary, and the comment was a very interesting comment, and basically it went along the lines of this... I am a descendant of King James, so she says, and I don't like, or I'm not particularly happy with some of the uh, cruelty that was done uh, concerning King James, and he too has been criticised for being harsh towards witches, and she said, I feel ashamed of my heritage. But you see, there's always more sides to that issue. Yes, James would have dealt with witches, obviously, and if you were a Catholic, your Pope would have dealt with so-called heretics, quote-unquote. If, if you are a Muslim, your Leaders would have dealt with infidels. So how do you want to approach this? How do you want to approach this? If you are a snowflake living in the 21st century, it's, it's very easy, isn't it, to criticise what took place three, four, five hundred years ago. But most of the time, it's basically Anglo-Saxons criticising their own crowd. You won't find white people in this country criticising the Chinese or the Japanese. It doesn't happen, does it? You get white people in this country criticising what took place two, three, four, five hundred years ago, and you speak to Chinese people or Japanese people, they rarely criticise their ancestors. They live in the present, you see. So here, when it says, thou shalt not suffer, you will not allow a witch to live, it's aimed at a Jew under the law. A Jew under the law wasn't allowed, permitted to practise sorcery. And also you are told from the book of Galatians that sorcery is a sin of the flesh. 
And Paul says that people that practice witchcraft, sorcery, Galatians chapter 5, aimed at saved people, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 19. Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. Bestiality still goes on around the world. Today, the Egyptians did this. The Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians did this. Uh, goes on today. I read a story in the paper maybe two years ago of a man who was caught in London having sex with his dog. Was arrested but wasn't prosecuted. And here again, the Jews were prohibited. The Jews were prohibited from practicing bestiality. The Egyptians did it. It was prevalent in the land of Canaan. And God said quite simply, you won't do this. You being the Jews, you won't do this. This isn't aimed at the Gentiles. God has no interest in the Gentiles at this point in history. He's speaking to the Jews, his people. And of course, at the great white throne judgment, he would deal with everyone that has ever lived and died outside of his plan of salvation. Don't worry about those people. They will get their comeuppance. But here, he's dealing with the Jews under the law. Going back to thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. If a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. This is the Jews. This is for the Jews. This is Jewish through and through. And obviously, Gentiles that would do this or Gentiles that would commit the sin of verse 16, 17, 18, 19 are going to pay for it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Some people get very excited. Some people like to put Christians like myself on the spot and say, why are you so cruel? When they, when they say you, they mean Christians. Why are you Christians so cruel? Of course, we're not cruel, and neither are we Jews. We're living under grace, not the law. The problem with the crowd over in uh, Massachusetts was that they were Calvinists. They were living under the Old Testament, not the New Testament. They couldn't delineate between law and grace. And they went over to America with their new theocracy, Calvin's and also Augustine's City of God, and basically went back to the Old Testament and pushed that on people like Calvin would do in, in uh, Geneva. They pushed this on people. And if you fell foul of their new theocracy, quote-unquote, it was death for you. That's not what we teach. You were never told to execute somebody that did 16, 17, or somebody that did 18, or somebody that did 19. You weren't told to execute anybody. If a Christian was to do 18 and 19 specifically, put them out of the fellowship. Cut them off. Have no fellowship with them. But to go beyond that, like the Calvinists did in Massachusetts and elsewhere, as far as I'm concerned, is a terrible blunder and a terrible mistake. Look at verse 20. He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Again, the Jews were told to worship one god. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Mark chapter 12. Hear, O Israel. The, uh, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall worship him, you shall love him in uh, body, soul, and spirit. The whole emphasis of these verses is to keep the Jews on track. Don't get caught up in the worship of false gods. The Jews are going into the land of Canaan. Canaan, like I say, was like Corinth. Canaan was like Egypt before the Jews arrived. Gods everywhere, blood had been shed left, right, and center. Bestiality was ripe, and Jehovah is saying quite simply, don't sacrifice unto any other God. Save except unto the Lord only, Jehovah only. He shall be utterly destroyed, like put to death. Now for today, if a Christian falls into idolatry, and yes, it can happen, like a Christian can fall into witchcraft, Galatians chapter 5, a Christian can fall into anything 
Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, but here, in the context of verse 20, should a Christian fall into idolatry, put him out of the fellowship. Paul told you that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you start to really drill into the kingdom of God. Few people, few people are going to be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saved, but like by the skin of their teeth. 21. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. This is Israel's great commission to some extent. And yet, unfortunately, most Jews that I have known over the years or observe today rarely have ever preached about Jehovah. Most Jews today are secular. Most Jews today are agnostic. Most Jews today are atheist. And even those that are religious, they very rarely, very rarely preach about Jehovah. They very rarely put the case for creation. And this is why it's so disappointing when you come across conservative Jews. And there are some conservative Jews and you speak to them. They have nothing to say. Most, most uh, Jews are liberals. They don't want to uh, speak up for the Lord or witness for the Lord. Of course, the Great Commission, for those of us which are saved, is something which is part of our everyday life. 21 again. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger like a Gentile, nor oppress him. Now, the slavery issue goes back to a Jew purchasing a Jew based on, like I say, personal debt or personal theft. There's no welfare back in the Old Testament. There was a stigma attached to a personal debt, and therefore to pay the debt, and Christ has paid our debt to the Father, the person would, would uh, sell themselves into slavery. Christ became a servant for our sins. There was a story of a woman who got saved in Africa not long ago, maybe 25 years ago or thereabouts. She got saved, and she wanted to help build a church in her village and she realized she could never raise enough money to build a church in her village so she decided to sell herself she decided to become a slave she sold herself into slavery and during her 10 years of being a slave she saved up money to purchase to build a church now could you do that could you deny yourself uh, jesus told you to deny yourself to pick up your cross it's tough isn't it but here you will not vex a stranger like a gentile nor oppress him why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You've got to shine. It's not just what you shouldn't do. It's what you should do. Christians aren't just told what they shouldn't do, but they are told what they should do. And here Jehovah wants his Jews to shine. He wants his people to shine. He wants the Gentiles to be aware how great, first of all, he is, and secondly, how great his people are. To shame them. Because Jesus said, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So basically, if you're not a follower of Jesus for the New Testament or Jehovah for the Old Testament, you are a follower of the devil. There's a difference, you see. So therefore, the Jews have to really shine and put their Gentile neighbors to shame. Look at verse 22. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Time after time after time after time, God Almighty speaks about this very subject. Some of you mothers out there, you've got no husbands. Some of you mothers out there, you've got no man in your house. Some of you women have had children, sometimes uh, inside of marriage, sometimes outside of marriage. But now you are alone, raising your children all alone. And when you do that, God sees you. He sees your struggles. He sees your pain. He sees your anguish. He knows it's difficult to raise two, three, four, five, maybe six children on your own. Children need their fathers. 
every single time, without any exception, children need their fathers. Even if they are bad fathers, they still need their fathers. And here you are told not to afflict any widow, she's lost her husband, or fatherless child. This is repeated time after time after time after time. And Christians are the most generous when it comes to giving to charities, groups, organisations that deal with uh, fatherless children, widows, because God sees the need of the family unit to be strong. Look at verse 23. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wife shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Turns your blood cold. You mess around with a single woman back in the Old Testament. You take advantage of a single woman back in the Old Testament. Almost feeding back to verse 16, 17 with children. You try to seduce her back in the Old Testament. And she cries out to Jehovah. Maybe you promised her marriage. Maybe you promised her this or that. Renate on the deal. And she cries out to the Lord wanting vengeance. My wrath, verse 24, shall wax hot. This is God speaking. And I will kill you, I will kill you with a sword. This goes back to the Puritans' logic. They went to America. They took the Geneva Bible with them, like I say. They were failures when it came to rightly dividing the word of truth. And they put these verses on Gentiles, ironically, not the Jews. And they put these verses on Gentiles under the dispensation of grace, not the law. And they accused people of being heretics, like the Catholics would do, or being infidels, like the Muslims would do. And they kill people in their dozens, perhaps hundreds, not thousands, not millions, like the Crusades, like the Inquisition would do, or like the uh, Islamists would do, going back to the 7th century. Pick your religion, people. Pick your religion. If you're a typical unsaved person today, and you are quick enough to judge religious people, look at your own self. We've had 6 million abortions in this country since 1969. You're going to pick a fight with those people? Of course you won't. You're going to go after those abortionists, those doctors, those nurses that have killed... Six million, six million since 1969. You never hear anything about it, do you? You never hear anything about it. We know about the Holocaust. There's been movies made about the Holocaust. There's been documentaries, a few, not many, made about the gulags. And I saw a report about what's going on in China. I was sent a video last night about the Chinese building camps all over China to inter dissidents, non-conformists, Christians. Nothing said about that. Nothing said about that. And yet, if you get people jumping up and down about the witches in uh, Massachusetts, or this or that, but when it comes to abortion in this country, nobody cares, or what's going on in China, nobody cares, and the whole thing is so hypocritical. But here, God is speaking about women that are wronged, are being abused, and if they cry to the Lord, under the law, he will kill you with his sword, and your wives, this is aimed at married people, and your wives shall be widows. And your children fatherless. This almost pictures Judas Iscariot. Back in the Psalms. I forget which one it is from memory. It speaks about the consequences of Judas's treachery. Prophesied of course back in the Old Testament. And it makes the case very clearly. That Judas's children would be vagabonds. Beggars would be cursed for a period of time. And also his wife would suffer terribly. As a result of what he did. But it's the same sort of a thing. You've got Judas, son of perdition, attacking son of God and accusing the son of God directly and indirectly of having the wrong motives. 
when push came to shove, he would team up with the Gentiles and they would pretty much destroy a sinless son of Israel. Same sort of a thing. Look at 22 again. Ye, now it goes to the plurality. Ye, like all of you, shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. So be careful how you approach mothers with children. There's no man around. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wife shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Judas Iscariot to some extent, his wife to some extent, and his children to some extent. 25. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usara, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If you lend my people any money, if a Jew lends to the Jews, or if a Jew was to lend any money to a fellow Jew, anything about the Jewish banks, the Jewish financiers, they lend money, they make a lot of money, and a lot of Gentiles are jealous about that. That's one of the reasons why Jews are despised, because they are so successful. And I remember watching that movie, The House of Rothschilds, made back in the 1930s. Very interesting movie about Nathan uh, Rockefeller, Rothschild, excuse me, and his brothers. And they went to different parts of the world, were very successful. And that movie has been uh, pushed by the Nazis, as was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, written by the Jesuits, incidentally. Listen, you've got to know your history. If you don't know your history... You are fooled every single time. Back in 1918, 1919 or thereabouts, Britain was in Israel, governing Israel. It was a disaster. And around that time, the protocols of the elders of Zion was being circulated around the British officers. They were reading it. It was like mandatory reading, very much enjoying it. But unfortunately, it turned them against the Jew. And it turned towards the Arab, which is what the Jesuits wanted. But because people don't realise how wicked the Jesuits are. They thought this book was written by real Jews about the Jews' plan to dominate the world. It was a hoax. It was fake news. And those British officers didn't know what was going on. Most were unsaved, probably Christian in name only. And they sided against the Jews and took the side of the Muslims, the Mohammedans. And the Jesuits back in Rome and elsewhere were laughing their heads off. You've got to know your history. You've got to understand why people do what they do. Church of Rome are into a placement theology. The Calvinists, Massachusetts, were into a placement theology. The Church of England is into a placement theology. They all follow Augustine. If you don't know your church history, you've got no idea, have you, why people do what they do. If thou lend money to any of my people, that is poor by thee. So you've got wealthy Jews exploiting poor Jews. Rockefeller, Rothschilds, still going today. In fact, I saw one video a while ago, very interesting. 1948, the Jews are back in the land trying to get the UN to recognise Israel as a state. And the first vote failed to go the way of Tel Aviv. And the government in Israel, 1948, got onto Mossad and said to Mossad, we need to persuade our South American friends, like Honduras, like Ecuador, like Mexico, those sort of countries, all good Catholic countries, to vote for us. And uh, Mossad were given the remit to have a quiet conversation, shall we say, with Rockefeller, who was pro-Hitler during the 1930s and 40s, a good Jewish boy, supporting 
the Third Reich. And Mossad said this. Mossad said, if you don't play ball, we will publicly expose you for being an apostate Jew. We will bring your empire down. And therefore, you need to get onto your friends in those countries I've just mentioned and get them to vote for Israel. And of course, what happened? The vote came around the second time around. And surprise, surprise, Israel won. She got recognition from five or six Catholic countries based on Mossad blackmailing someone like Rockefeller. Gotta watch it. You need to know your history, people. If you don't know your history, you've got no idea what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. You get tossed to and fro. You get mopped up by the cults, mopped up by the far right, mopped up by the far left. You've got no idea if you're coming or going. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer. Neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Interest is out. Interest was out back in the Old Testament. Contrast that to today. The Jews have been very successful when it comes to making money. Why? Well, because one day the 144,000 are going to arrive. They won't come from the Gentiles. They come from the Jews. And they will preach the gospel. And as a result of their preaching the gospel, millions are going to be saved. Also, the Jews are blessed to make money, to be successful, based on a promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Bless those that bless you. Curse those that curse you. You are told over in Romans that the Jews are enemies for the sake of the gospel. And they will try and block you, hinder you. 1947, my grandfather was in Israel as a British officer, ducking and diving the Stern Gang. Bombs are going off all over the place. King David Hotel was targeted. British soldiers are being executed by terrorists. That's what they were, the Stern Gang. Terrorists. Down the line, the Brits were forced to pull out of Israel. 1948. And again, like I say, thanks to Mossad leaning on Rockefeller, the vote went through. But you were told they are enemies for the sake of the gospel. Romans chapter 11. But, 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 for the sakes of Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, they are beloved. They are beloved. And therefore you have to love them. Unfortunately, those British soldiers back in 1917, 1918, 1919, 1920 didn't know their Bibles, weren't saved, of course, were duped by the protocols of the elders of Zion, were reading that book like it was a must-read, hot off the press, were falling for the lies in that book, not knowing that that book was written by the Jesuits to smear the Jews, to rubbish the Jews. Adolf Hitler comes along, a corporal in World War I gets his hands on that book and he says, I now know why the world is the way that it is. Blames the Jews for everything. Doesn't know that the devil is the ultimate power on the face of the earth. Hates the Jews with a perpetual hatred. Has no idea about that. Because he too didn't know his Bible. And all these people are falling over themselves to line up to give the Jew a good kicking. World War I, World War II, right up into the current day. So you've got to be careful. You don't close your eyes when it comes to the bankers. Could be Rockefeller, Rothschild, you call them out. They are apostate Jews, they'll be judged, don't worry. But you can't condemn them all. You can't become anti-Semitic. You have to love the Jews. Paul told you that. He told you that from the book of Romans. And he had no reason to love them. They hated him. Completely hated him. They hated Jesus, but Jesus loved them. And Paul loved them. And if you are a Bible believer, you too have got to love them. So I will say this and sign out. These verses basically are building on the creation of a nation, the initiation of a constitution. God will punish the death of a homebreaker should it take place in daylight. The owner of the home will pay with his own life for taking the life of a criminal. Now how about that? God will punish that man. 
because he should have shown more restraint. But if it takes place at night, he deserves, he deserves to lose his life. Animals that are torn, ripped, stolen, confiscated, will have to be compensated for. Acts of God, Murphy's Law, like they say. Can't do much about that. Write it off, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 16 and 17, a couple come together, have to get married. If you don't get married elsewhere, like Leviticus for memory, death would follow. If a guy was able to sweet talk a woman, or vice versa, then a marriage has been initiated, and therefore, via a supper, not like in today's standard, but a feast to some extent. A couple come together via the father, verse 17, a dowry is paid, a gift has been produced to secure her hand in marriage, as it were. And if you don't do that, death would follow. 18, a Jew caught practicing witchcraft, like sorcery, was to be put to death, like King Saul, who would uh, die down the way, down the line. 19, bestiality is out. For the Old Testament, death. For today, if somebody was depraved enough to do this, a professing Christian, put him out. And also look at verse 19. Whosoever, man or woman, not just men who do these things, it's women as well. Most of what you see online, or you read online or in the papers concerning pornography, is produced by men and women. Don't give men a kicking all the time. Verse 20. He that sacrificeth unto any god, worships another god, save, except unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Execution for the Old Testament, New Testament, put him out. Put him out of the fellowship. 21 down to 25, we'll hold it there, builds on being a good light, a good witness, treating your fellow Jew well, and for today, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. And of course, if a widow with children cries out to God for being poorly treated, exploited perhaps, and God hears it back under the Old Testament, he will intervene and perhaps kill you like Judas Iscariot. And 25, usury interest, don't make money off the backs of your fellow Jew. Peter speaks about this, how they make merchandise off you. Second Peter chapter 2, and they will be destroyed for that. So last Sunday we looked at bestiality, we looked at fornication, we looked at witchcraft, and the Bible covers pretty much every sin, every subject under the sun. And one more time, this piece of scripture, doctrinally speaking, is aimed at the Jews under the law. Yes, we can get material from this, spiritual material, but for the most part, these verses are looking at the Jews, way back under the Old Testament law. Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 22, look at verse 26, if you will. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him, by that the sun goeth down, for that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. Keep your hand there and go to Matthew chapter 5. You were also told last week not to afflict the Gentiles, not to treat them badly, because you, being the Jews, had once been afflicted by the Gentiles, being the Egyptians, of course. The Jews were expected to live a very particular way. They were expected to be a beacon to the lost world. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 goes very nicely with Exodus twenty-two twenty-six, and from uh, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 38, if you will. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8 is referred to as a Sermon on the Mount. And like Exodus 22 
Doctrinally, it is difficult to apply to anyone living today. Spiritually, yes. And when the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is initiated, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8 will come into play. But like all parts of Scripture, we can read these verses and apply them spiritually. So therefore, if you are a Christian, and I'll say this, that being a Christian is not only impossible, but it's the hardest way to live. It's the hardest religion to follow. Only Jesus Christ was a good Christian. But if you are a Christian doing street work, for example, and somebody comes up to you and attacks you, slaps you across the face, for example, you aren't allowed to retaliate in a physical sense, but you are told to turn the other cheek. Very difficult. You try it sometime. This isn't in reference to a nation being attacked by another nation. And Patrick began this service talking about Israel, very much under attack at the moment from Iran and other hostile Islamic countries. If a nation attacks another nation, the nation in question is able to retaliate. Absolutely. Romans 13 tells you that, that the minister of the Lord, he's called a minister. The minister of the Lord, I don't mean a church minister, I mean a state minister. The minister of the Lord, Romans chapter 13, if he's got a sword, or for today's vernacular, a gun, he's able to use it because he's God's minister. Nation can retaliate, but an individual doing street work has to turn the other cheek. Look at verse 40. And if any man will sue thee at the law... And take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. This almost mirrors First Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul is deploring the carnality in Corinth concerning Christians suing other Christians. And there's one thing that you never find me doing, is suing another Christian. I don't care if you're in fellowship with the Lord or not. If you were to slander me, for example, or say something libelous about me, I'd have to take it. 1 Corinthians 6 tells me to do so. Even this piece of scripture alludes to it. But of course, if you are a non-Christian and you come against me in a particular matter, I have the right to sue you. But here, back under the law, because Jesus Christ is speaking to the Jews under the law, only when he dies and is buried and resurrected and subsequently ascended back to heaven, does the New Testament come into play. Got to be careful when it comes to rightly dividing the word of truth. But here, technically speaking, also going back to Exodus 22 this is aimed at the jews under the law they're to walk a particular way if any man if any woman if anyone verse 14 will sue thee at the law take it to court and take away thy coat as a form of payment as a form of losing the court case of course let him or her have thy cloak also go the extra mile you see but you try and do this sometime it's very difficult it's really difficult if not impossible and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile. Go with him twain. Go with him two. Go back to the book of Exodus. So Exodus 22, like verse 26, says again, If thou at all take thy neighbour's raiment to pledge, if a Jew takes another Jew's clothing to pledge like as a guarantee, thou shalt deliver it unto him, by that the sun goeth down. It gets very cold in the Middle East, and a Jew who lost his clothing for a period of time and got cold, and cried out to the Lord, it was considered to be sinful, basically, because you were depriving your brother of his clothing. 27. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? How shall he sleep? You can't sleep without clothing, especially not in the Middle East, back in the day. And it shall come to pass, when he crieth unto me, that I will hear, for I am gracious. 
So Exodus 22 harmonizes very nicely with Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, strictly speaking, deals with the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet most liberals, most unsaved people think they'll be saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mount. You can't get saved keeping the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, there's no blood atonement. Did you notice that? Secondly, there's no new birth. Did you notice that? And thirdly, there's no repentance. There's no faith. There's no trusting in a crucified and resurrected Saviour. That comes much later on. But during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the initiation of a constitution comes into play, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8 will be very relevant. And possibly, perhaps, also the Old Testament will be reinitiated, going back to the animal sacrifices, which Ezekiel speaks about. Exodus 22. Exodus 22. Look at verse 28, if you will. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. On one occasion, the Apostle Paul was being interrogated by religious people. And religious people in the Bible are the biggest problem uh, to deal with, the most hostile people to deal with. It was religious people that crucified Christ. It was religious people that executed Old Testament prophets. It was religious people that put the Apostles to death. People think that atheists are the most difficult people to deal with. Well, that's only half of the story. I guess if you looked at Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Hitler, all religious, of course, or all atheists, but from religious backgrounds, you could have an argument. For example, Hitler, as a Austrian Catholic, was responsible for 25 million deaths, indirectly, of course. Joseph Stalin, from Georgia, trained at a Jesuit school, was responsible for probably 60 million deaths. Mao Zedong, from memory, had a French teacher, yeah. or there was a French connection, connection and also the Vietnamese uh, leader, was it Pol Pot? I think it was Pol Pot, actually, uh, from Cambodia, also had a French teacher from a Jesuit school. But strictly speaking, you've got Pol Pot, atheist, you've got Stalin, atheist, killing probably 150 million people in the name of Charles Darwin, in the name of uh, Karl Marx, a secular Jew. You've got uh, Adolf Hitler, like I say, an Austrian Catholic, killed millions of people but when it comes to the scripture when it comes to the old testament those that were the most hostile the most vindicative those that were the most tricky and uh, difficult to deal with were religious people same will be true for the new testament thou shalt not revile the gods if you hold to the gap theory which a lot of dispensationalists do they believe that before adam and eve were on the earth there was a group of people pre-adamic people and Lucifer, they believe, was calling the shots. He was in charge of planet Earth. And he had many minions under his authority. And they were top dog. He was top dog on the Earth with his uh, followers. And they believe that at that time, Lucifer was a god. Paul does call him the god of this world. And they also believe that he had servants, demons, that were co-ruling with him. It's a very popular view. I don't hold to the gap theory. I don't completely dismiss it. But I don't teach it as doctrine. I park it up, I leave it where it is, and I approach that subject slightly sceptical. But here, thou shalt not revile the gods. You weren't allowed, if you were a Jew back under the Old Testament, to revile the gods, because gods, in a sense of demons, devils, principalities, and high places, had authority, in a sense. They could have a hold over you. In fact, if you look at 23.13, this goes some way to help you understand this. 23.13, and in all things... That I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make 
no mention of the name of other gods. Neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Don't even mention them. Don't mention Zeus. Don't mention Isis. Don't mention Osiris. Don't mention Baal. Don't mention Talmuz. Don't mention this person or that person. Don't mention Lucifer. Every time you mention a god or gods back in the Old Testament, there was a temptation to follow them, to be seduced by them. So basically you've got two views on this. If you hold to the gap theory, then you are of the belief that there were gods on the earth under the authority of Lucifer. Or if you hold to the non-gap theory, then you look at verse 13 from chapter 23 and you understand that gods, demons, devils could have a hold over you. So therefore be careful what you say. Also from Ecclesiastes, is it? It says, be careful what you say for a bird of the air may hear what you say, I'm slightly paraphrasing, and the bird of the air, picturing a demon or a devil, may uh, share what you said in secret uh, in a public setting. If you think of King James, when he first married Anna Denmark, on one occasion, it was his uh, wedding night, he was intimate with his wife, obviously, and these two were having a conversation, and a witch, 300 miles away, was aware, shall we say, of the conversation that was taking place, James met this witch some years later and he said to her, how in the world did you know what my wife and I were saying? Even the devils, even the devils, even the devils in hell didn't know what we were saying. Well, obviously somebody was listening. Be careful. Be careful what you say in secret because one day it will be made uh, known in the public, in public. So when it says, thou shalt not revile the gods, be careful, nor curse the ruler. Of thy people. On one occasion, like I say, the Apostle Paul was being interrogated by religious people in the book of Acts. Paul suffered with uh, eyesight issues and he was poor of sight. And one of the religious fathers, a good godly man, slapped Paul across the face and he retaliated. He said, You whitewashed wall, or something along those lines. He retaliated. His tongue got the better of him. Going back to Romans chapter 7 what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing. The two natures of the believer. And yet when Christ was slapped across the face. Didn't say a word. Took it. Because only Jesus Christ. If the truth were known. Was a real Christian. Post Christ. We all fall. We all fail. But here. Go back to the original context. The Jews under the law. Are being told by Moses. Not to revile. Not to speak evil. If you will. Against the gods. Also. There's a third view to this. The term gods. In Hebrew is Elohim. And it can also be in reference to the leaders. For example, a Jew back in the Old Testament wasn't to speak evil of Moses, obviously. Uh, Jeremiah, as a prophet down the line. Joshua, uh, or some of the other greats that would work closely uh, with Moses, like her. And some of the names which escape me. Because God would set up authority. Rulers, leaders were called gods. Not in the sense of being deity, but in the sense of being rulers. So be careful when, it come, when you come to exegeting. Verse 28. Look at verse 29. Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors. The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. Give me your firstborn son. And here, sons in the plural. And I will give you my only begotten son in the singular. If you are a Bible believer, if you are a saved man or woman, all that you have belongs to the Lord anyway. So don't feel pushed or don't be a grudging giver don't start to be disgruntled if you if you don't like to give in fact keep your hand there and go to uh, James 
chapter two, uh, James chapter two. I remember some years ago we were doing some street work and a lady came over to us from uh, Dublin, Southern Ireland. She had three children with her and uh, she said, uh, basically, we just arrived from Ireland. Uh, we are staying with a friend, a lady friend, and uh, we've got no food. We're hungry. And uh, she'd had a rough life. You could tell she'd had a rough life. She was running from her husband, domestic violence for memory. And she was staying with a friend in our town, some women that she knew. And she said this, we just arrived, meaning her and her three children, and we're hungry. Can you help us out? We've got no money until Monday when the gyro gets paid in the UK. If you don't work or you are poor, you are entitled to welfare. And we spoke to this woman for maybe five or six minutes. And when you do street work, you have to weigh up people very quickly. And I'm giving out tracks. Patrick's giving out tracks. Also, you don't want to become distracted by uh, people needing something from you. So I said to this woman, probably in her mid to late 40s, can you come back maybe in an hour's time and we'll be finishing then and we can try to help you. In the meantime, what you might want to do is go to the church up the road because she told me she was a Catholic and just see if they will help you. Here's a woman just arrived from Southern Ireland, got three kids with her. She's Catholic, so she tells me. Or they don't want to help you. There's a Methodist church down the road. Their doors are open on a Saturday. And about an hour later, she came back with her three kids in tow. And I said to her, how did you get on with the Catholic Church? And she said to me, they weren't interested, they wouldn't help us. I said, what, really? And she said, yeah, they wouldn't help us. That did surprise me, being a Catholic herself. And I said to her, how about the Methodist Church? Doors are open every weekend, and they are. No, they wouldn't help us either. They wouldn't even give us a cup of coffee, which really surprised me. So I said to her, well, what we'll do is, I'm just packing up now, but Patrick will take you over to the local supermarket and uh, get some food for you. Now, I don't know if she was lying or not. But I know one thing, she had three kids with her. And if she were telling me the truth, telling us the truth, why should the kids suffer? Why should the kids suffer? If I go back to Exodus 22, look at verse 22 again. You shall not afflict any widow, could be her, or fatherless child, could be them. Now, if she's telling me the truth, I want to help her out. If she's lying, then she'd have to give an account of herself at the judgment. But I have to be careful when it comes to children. In fact, look at 23 and 24. If thou afflict them in any wise, like don't help them out, and they cry at all unto me, of course, this is aimed at the Jews under the law, but spiritually speaking, we can apply it to today, I, God speaking, will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. He won't kill a Christian today, but he may chastise a Christian today for not helping out a single mother with children. And your wives, if you have wives, shall be widows, and your children, if you have kids, She'll be fatherless. Go back to James chapter 2. So we did what we could. We helped out this woman. And like I say, Patrick purchased some food for her and the kids. A week later, we saw her and the kids walk straight past us. But that's okay. Our work was done. We gave her tracts. We witnessed to her. And the kids heard the gospel as well, as far as we were concerned. We did what we could for her and her children. James chapter 2 builds on this. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Look at verse 14. What doth it profit my brethren... Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Imagine me standing on that street corner, giving out tracts. And anybody can stand on a street corner giving out tracts. Anybody can stand on a street corner shouting at people to repent. Anybody can do that. But how about going the extra mile? I remember some years ago, I was 
made aware of a homeless man in my town called Malcolm. And I got to know Malcolm maybe over a few months. He was a homeless man and uh, he was going through the bins in my neighbourhood. And I got to know him, like I say. On one occasion he was rummaging in the bins late at night. It was middle of winter. And I went out to him, opened the door. And I said to him, uh, are you hungry, Malcolm? And he said he, he said he was. And I said to him, uh, do you want to come in, have some food? And he didn't want to come in, which was fair enough. But here's the thing, could you do that? Could you do that? Could you open the door to a homeless person? And could you say this, uh, do you want to come in for a bath? I offered him a bath. Could you feed him? Could you allow him to have your bed for the night? That's what this is really all about. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Exodus 22, Jews under the law. And here James chapter 2. Think about it sometime. What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? I got faith. That's what they say. We all say it. I say it. And have not works. Ephesians chapter 2, like verse 10, saved unto good works. Can faith save him? Can it exonerate him? Can it justify him in the presence of his peers? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. That woman from Ireland wasn't a sister in the Lord. She was a Catholic. Not particularly religious either. Born a Catholic, probably. But nonetheless, she's a physical sister. We all come from Adam, of course. But not a spiritual sister. Only when you are born again are we brothers and sisters in the Lord. Galatians chapter 3. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? This is basic Bible. This is biblical Christianity in play. Try it sometime. Like I say, anybody can stand in a street corner and give out tracts like we do, street preach like we do, call on sinners to repent like we do. Unfortunately, most of the street preachers that I know are antagonistic and also preach holiness and righteousness to unsaved people. You don't preach holiness and righteousness to unsaved people. You preach that to the saved. You preach the law to the lost and grace to those that are saved. But most street preachers don't know their Bibles. Most street preachers are argumentative, very pious, very self-righteous. That's one of the reasons why they get so many views on their videos. Because people like to watch a good boxing match. There's no gospel preached by most of these street preachers. The next time you meet a street preacher, just say to him quietly, do you do any kind of outreach when it comes to homeless people, destitute people? Do you go the extra mile? Do you give your coat to that person? Matthew chapter 5. Even so, faith, verse 17 if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Basically, you say this. I'm a good godly man. I'm a good godly woman. And then someone comes to your house, knocks on the door, and you say, oh, it's that Malcolm again. And you close the door in his face. I got to know Malcolm. I remember there were three churches in my town, still are. And I got, I got into contact with three churches. One was Catholic, one was Anglican, one was Methodist. And I found the names of the men that were in charge of those three churches, wrote to those three churches about Malcolm. And I said to these three churches, first of all, are you aware of Malcolm? He's going around the bins every night. And at the time, it was the middle of winter, freezing cold. I've already approached him, offered him food, which I was able to provide for him and other uh, bits and pieces to help him out. Are you churches doing anything for him? And out of the three churches I wrote to, I got one letter back from the Methodist Church. About two months later, I was in my local bank and I saw the vicar from the Church of England. And I went up to him and I said, you, Mr. Such and Such? And he said he was. And I said to him, my name is James Patel. I wrote to you 
uh, a month or so ago about Malcolm. Oh, yes, he said, I got your letter. Very well written, he said. And I looked at him and said, but are you going to help out Malcolm? And he said, well, we have uh, structures in place. We do this and we do that, blah, blah, blah. But basically, he wasn't prepared to help out Malcolm, as far as I could tell. And as far as the Catholic Church were concerned, not interested either. Going back to the Irish lady from Dublin a couple of years ago. And these people all offer themselves as Christians, all offer themselves as decent religious people. And yet when people came their way for help, whether directly or indirectly, it uh, wasn't uh, dealt with, really. They were refused, if you will. They were turned down. Going back to the biggest problem in the Bible concerning those that were saved, when they came into contact with the average man in the Bible, got a rough deal, and the average man in the Bible, that caused the Old Testament prophets problems, and the New Testament apostles problems, and the Lord Jesus Christ problems, were religious people, basically. Look at 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. The Jews believe this. So too do the Muslims. Actually speaking, the Catholics as well. But big deal. Big deal if you are monotheist. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Go back to the book of Exodus. So James chapter 2 is obviously aimed at saved people. And James's remit was to get saved people to live out their faith. To go the extra mile, if you will. Matthew 5, 6, 7 and 8. But again, Matthew 5, 6, 7 and 8. Some of them out won't save you. A lot of good people, quote unquote. A lot of unsaved people do good works and will go to hell forever. It takes a real man of God to look at an unsaved man and say, you're going to burn. Or a saved woman to look in the eyes of an unsaved woman and say, you're going to perish. That's not easy to do. And on top of that, to have an open door policy. If you are a man, of course, not a woman. I don't think women should be doing this. But if you are a man, a brother, and you're able to help someone like Malcolm out, do so. Allow him into your house. Why not? Feed him if he, if he wants to be fed. Clothe him if he wants to be clothed. Isn't that what Matthew 25 is all about? Matthew 25 speaks about those that were taken care of. Doctrinally speaking, during the tribulation, but we can apply that spiritually to today. Take care of someone's physical needs. There's my table. Have a seat. I, I will feed you. I will clothe you. Have a bath if you want. Have my bed if you will. I will take care of you. Of course, the flip side to Matthew 25 is those that don't do good works end up going to hell. Of course, that's not what saves you, understand. But Jesus is speaking about those that were saved. Matthew 25 and what their faith meant to them. Some produce fruit like 90-fold, 70-fold, 30-fold, so on and so forth. Exodus 22, Exodus 22, look at verse 30. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam. On the eighth day thou shalt give it me. It's all mine anyway. Jehovah is speaking. It's all mine anyway. I own the sheep on a thousand hills. I gave you salvation. I regenerated you. I have adopted you to be my sons and daughters. You belong to me anyway. Paul says you weren't bought by your own purchase. You are bought by the blood of Christ. You were purchased by the precious blood of Christ. That's what Peter says as well. The precious blood of Christ. You don't own yourself. You don't belong to yourself. If you are saved, God owns you. He owns you. You weren't purchased with corruptible things, but with incorruptible things. By the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 31. 
and ye shall be holy men unto me. Neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Ye shall cast it to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Matthew chapter 7. Be careful when it comes to preaching to people. Many times we like to go back over old ground with the same old people. We like to witness the same old people. I don't do that anymore. I used to do that maybe nine or ten years ago, but I don't do that anymore. My family know what I believe, where I stand. My friends know what I believe and where I stand. I don't go over the same old ground again and again and again. I don't believe that. I know some people speak to their unsaved family all the time. I don't think that's the way to go forth with this. You're casting pearls before swine. They've already turned you down. You won't find Jesus doing this. You won't find the apostles doing this. I know some people are desperate to see their family saved, obviously. Friends and foes to be saved, obviously. But I don't believe going over the same old ground with the same old people. You cheapen the gospel, first of all. Secondly, the more you open your mouths to unsaved family and friends, the more they're going to be damned, condemned, judged. That's why Jesus Christ spoke in parables. So that the Jews around him, first of all, wouldn't be aware of sacred subjects like intimate briefings. And secondly, so that when the judgment came around, they wouldn't suffer even more damnation. Which shows me that, that which shows me how loving he really was. And ye shall be holy men unto me, holy women, holy in general. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Now for today, First Timothy Chapter 4 says you can eat whatever you wish to eat. Give thanks to the Lord, so on and so forth. But for the Jew, back under the law, there were limitations as to what he could and could not eat. Leviticus lists all of the foods that you could or could not receive. The Jew was to be a peculiar person. That word today means slightly different, odd. But for the Christian, there's no limitations on what he or she can or cannot eat. But here you'll notice that food is linked to holiness. Because if a Jew was seen to eat pork, for example, in public, he'd be causing his fellow Jew to stumble. Paul speaks about this over in the book of Romans. This goes back to one's liberty in the Lord. An incredibly difficult subject to preach and try and uh, get right. I have liberty in the Lord. If I wanted to, I could drink a glass of wine. I wouldn't, but I could if I wanted to. But I'd be worried that maybe you may see me drinking a glass of wine and be tempted to drink a bottle of wine. And within half an hour or 20 minutes of drinking a bottle of wine, you're intoxicated. And over the next maybe few months or a few years, you're an alcoholic. Maybe you were drunk before you got saved. Whereas I never was a drunk before I got saved. And here's me enjoying a drink over a meal, which Christians do. And I've got a brother who's saved, a sister who's saved. And these two are drunks, or they were drunks. And they see me having a, a glass of wine with my meal. It causes them to stumble, you see. Next thing I know, they're off the wagon and they're drunk. They're drinking again. And who's to blame? I'm to blame, basically. This is a difficult subject to really balance. And basically, you have to deny yourself. That's what Jesus said. Pick up your cross each and every day and follow me. I could go into a local restaurant, have a big meal. And I may be with someone who's an anorexic. Someone's with... Uh, an eating disorder, and here's me, overeating perhaps, and I've got a sister or a brother next to me who is struggling to eat anything. And they have a mouthful, going to the toilets, and they force themselves to throw up. Bulimia, isn't that what they call it, bulimia? Yeah. Who's to blame? I am to blame. 
or maybe I have a cigarette once in a blue moon. I don't smoke, but let's say I did. And I got somebody who's sitting with me who was a chain smoker before they got saved. And here's me having a puff once a week, twice a week. And they watch me doing it, good old brother Patel. And now they want to start doing it. And before you know it, they're back on a pack, two packs a day. You can't do it. And here's the same sort of a thing. You should be holy men unto me, neither shall you eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in a field. Any, any animal that was devoured by another beast was considered to be unclean. Also going back to bestiality. It wasn't just the people that were to be executed from verse 19. Elsewhere, the animal was to be executed as well because the animal had been contaminated. And it's been said by some that before the flood came, Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, Genesis chapter 6, weren't only having sex with the daughters of men, which I believe, but were also having sex with animals. And were producing satyrs, uh, demons, monsters, found over in... Uh, Revelation chapter 9. I don't know if I go that far. It's possible. People think that Goliath was connected with this demonic breed. That's possible. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. But it does appear to be that these men of renown, Genesis chapter 6, were fallen angels, able to take on human form, demon possession of some kind, and have intercourse, like I say, with the daughters of men, produce this half-angelic, half-human breed. Don't quite understand it. And when God saw that, he just wiped out the entire world, apart from eight people, of course. So bestiality, 19, is loosely connected with verse 31, because, like I said, the Jew was to be holy. He was to be careful what he would eat. And uh, if he wasn't careful what he would eat elsewhere, he was cut off, put out of the community. And if you were eating an animal that was torn by a beast in the field, cast it to the dogs. Now, of course, for the Jew, back in the Old Testament, a dog was a Gentile. If you think of the South Phoenician woman that Jesus spoke to, he basically called her a dog, basically, because the Jews saw Gentiles as dogs. John speaks about dogs from uh, Revelation 22. He uses that term for Jew and Gentile. But for a Muslim, when they see a dog, they, they see an unclean animal. God sees an unsaved man as a dog. He sees an unsaved woman as a sow, a sow. A female pig. Think about that sometime. If you're an unsaved woman, God sees you as a female pig. If you are an unsaved man, he sees you as a dog. What do dogs do? Eat their own vomits? What do uh, pigs do? Wallow in the mire? That's what God thinks of an unsaved woman. She's a pig. An unsaved man, he's a dog. So 31 verses from the book of Exodus 22. This will be week number 72. This has been broadcast number 72. And one more time, one last time, we are way back in the Old Testament under the law. It is tricky to read these verses and apply them even spiritually to people living today, but we have attempted to do we have attempted to do so this morning to show you how they do line up just about with Matthew five, James chapter two. Be careful what you think or say about the gods. Verse twenty eight could be rulers. In the context, Jews, governors, back in the Old Testament for today, leaders like preachers, elders, uh, teachers. Be careful what you think about brothers that are teaching, preaching. You are told from Hebrews to be in submission to them. You are told from Second uh, Timothy to submit yourselves to them, for they rule over you. Be careful what you think and say about brother such and such. He may not be completely right in everything, but he has to answer to God Almighty. Also from uh, uh, 29, 30, and of course 31, one last time, all of your 
firstborn, first ripe fruits, 29, and liquors, are to be dedicated to God Almighty. And that word liquor is obviously used today to denote alcohol, which Timothy was told to drink for his often infirmities. But get the balance right, get the interpretation right. Rightly divide the Bible. Don't become a heretic and force the Bible to contradict. And on top of that, don't become a heretic and apostate and try and teach that you will be saved somehow by keeping the Sermon on the Mount. You can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. There are good principles, and I've shown you some this morning, from the Sermon on the Mount. But you won't be saved by following Matthew 5, 6, 7, or 8, or James chapter 2. And one last time, I will say this, that James chapter 2 is basically speaking about saved people living and functioning in the presence of their peers. Or you get saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, God imputes grace to you. Imputation, Romans chapter 4, you get baptized, James chapter 2. God sees your faith, Romans chapter 4, that's what saves you and keeps you saved. Then you get baptized, which is seen by those around you, James chapter 2, which is a work also, but God allows you to do that. And once you have repented, Romans chapter 4, once you've been baptized, James chapter 2, the works will come. And those works are going to go a long way to deciding what the Lord will give all of us at the judgment seat of Christ.